0: Game and Train is the world's first self-service mobile learning solution. We provide multiple game engines that are creative, fun, and coupled with your business. It's gamification made easy. Create, publish, analyze. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Game and Train podcast. In this episode, we have a very special guest. Dr. Michael Sutton is joining us today. Hi, Michael. Yes, hello. How are you doing today?
1: Uh, well, it's snowing in Idaho in a way that reminds me of living back in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So i got to tell you, I'm having too many flashbacks to my poor upbringing in very, very cold winters in Manitoba.
0: <laughs> oh, no, that doesn't sound too good. Uh, <laughs> we're here. Uh, I'm here in Toronto. and. Uh, Our lead game designer, Dr. David Chandros, is also on the line. Hi, David. Hello. How are you doing?
2: Very well, thank you. It's snow-free here in Toronto today, kind of spring-like conditions, so we're the yin (laughs) for your yang.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. My envy goes out. Yeah. Okay. So uh, before we get started, I wanted to read a quick biography uh, to give Our listeners an idea of uh, who Michael is and then David and Michael will have uh, a a discussion on who knows everything. (laughs) Um, So Michael Sutton demonstrates his thought leadership skills as a game-based learning innovator, architect, and edupreneur. His current applied research focuses upon architecting and delivering game-based learning environments that leverage increased learning and performance for the following employee engagement, creativity, and innovation, design thinking, leadership, teamship, fellowship, community ship, and intrapreneur slash entrepreneurship, as well as knowledge acquisition, production, sharing, and diffusion. Michael's consulting firm, Funification LLC, provides advice to entrepreneurs, higher education faculty institutes, public sector organizations, and enterprises. His evolving presence in the fields of game-based learning, gamification, serious games, simulations, and immersive learning environments such as VR and AR has been recognized internationally. Michael has been teaching in executive education, community colleges, and universities for many decades after a long career in business and management as an entrepreneur and executive. He instills his learners with the passion for life That he has acquired through arduous and challenging life experiences. Michael is a scholarly practitioner and is widely recognized for his writing and workshops such as receiving the outstanding author contribution award at the Emerald Literati Network Awards for Excellence in 2013 and that was for his co-authored article on wikis in higher education. Well I I mean (laughs) I don't even know if we have to have the interview anymore Michael. I think that was enough. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh, I'm sure I have a couple more words to add. It's just that uh, when you get gray hair and you're over 65, you seem to accumulate a significant amount of baggage. Some people call it experience.
0: (laughs) Nice way of putting it. Um, So as I mentioned before, uh, Dr. David Chandros had a couple of questions for you, and I want to make this as organic as possible having sort of a back and forth between you guys as both gurus of your fields. So why don't you take it away, David?
2: All right. Well, Michael, I think it would be helpful for our listeners if we got an idea of how you entered the field of gamification. How did you first discover it and become attracted to it as a professional field?
1: Well, actually, it started when I was much, much younger. one of the challenges I encountered when I was very young was I grew up in a neighborhood where there were gangs and I liked to go to the library. And the reason I liked to go to the library was I I had a few people there that I would meet who I played go with, chess, stratego and risk. And ah. I loved those kind of games when I was so much younger. But it took me uh, lots of fights with these gangs to get through the library, so it it emblazoned me to be uh, very very interested and motivated to to uh, find games to play, uh, and I outwitted many of the gangs in the neighborhood I grew up in uh, by gamifying uh, my quest to get to the library. So it really started quite early, and then. You know, when I was in the corporate world, about uh, 40 to 50% of my consulting was in the area of training, and development, and learning. And I remember going to these absolutely boring uh, seminars or courses on how to use WordPerfect or Excel. And I thought to myself, if ever I teach this, I've got to get increased engagement from the learners. And sooner rather than later, since most of those were very poor quality, myself and my firm was involved in a lot of technology training for office automation. And when I did that, I introduced uh, gamified packages and quests for them to undertake in order to actually learn about a technology tool.
2: Of course. Michael can, I, Michael, can I ask you a question at this point? Had you been a gamer at any point? When you talk about quests, were you inspired by uh, board games, strategic? Which, or was it just these early experiences with Go and chess? And did you have... Oh, you no. Know,
1: yeah. Yes, I was an early gamer. Uh, when Dungeons and Dragons was uh. still on, analog, And I read significant amounts of science fiction when I was much, much younger. So uh, the whole area, for example, uh, Herbert Hess's book, The Glass Bead Game, uh, when I was in high school, really enamored me. And I tried to figure out how you could create the glass bead game. So I also started out in the video area when Pong were the first games and went to many, many video arcades with my colleagues uh, at that time, and spent a lot of time uh, increasing my eye-hand coordination. Of course, I never did become a fighter pilot, though.
2: Right. Next uh, next round. Um, so <laughs> these had an uh, influence as you entered it. So as you continued in your gamification, what were your early-in uh, systems like? Can you remark on? how people receive these ideas and how you began to introduce this into this world that you describe as rather sullen and ponderous, this kind of learning you were trying to liven up.
1: Well, when I began uh, teaching, I, I'm a late bloomer, so I didn't get my undergrad degree till I was 33 because I spent too much time as an entrepreneur in Canada trying to build businesses. and then. Uh, was invited in when I was 50 years old to McGill University in Montreal to take on my doctorate and therefore I, I didn't really graduate until I was 57 but around wow. 54 years old I was invited while I was ABD, all but dissertationed uh, to set up a new knowledge management and usability engineering program at Kent State University so I spent three years designing, developing, and delivering the courses there. And while I was doing it, I introduced analog card games online, uh, for example, one out of Toronto called Experience Point, a number of games to help the learners understand what knowledge management was all about and how change management, transformation took place in organizations, and building new skills in leadership uh, and teamship because many of them were, mm, let's use the word, nerdish. Uh, so their emotional intelligence quotients were not very high. And what I found was by uh, simply introducing games, they learned how to work together, communicate, and build new skill sets that were going to be much more applicable in the workplace.
2: Very interesting. So, I mean, a couple things come out. of that. One of them is that you're began your career and began innovation at a point when some people are ending their careers. So that is absolutely <laughs> impressive and astounding and a commensurate with the kind of work that we're seeing now where um, there really are no limits on where we can contribute the, um, in terms of our career. We can find whole. And you also mentioned something I'd like to pick up on a little bit. You talked about the use of analog card game to unplugged gaming. Um, Could you give us just maybe just a short example, you know, of, of how you might have, might have introduced
1: that? Yes, uh, I'd be glad to and, and just to follow on by uh, about one of your remarks, I've always considered myself a lifelong learner, mm. not not a student, and in fact in the late 60s when I first tried to go to university, there was this incredible power relationship between professors and students, and I was a activist and student radical, and I couldn't stand that power of relationship. So I dropped out of university very early on and I only entered it after I really gotten work experience. And in doing so, it helped me to realize that just building entrepreneurial businesses was part of my lifelong learning and that the formal degrees were only Union cards, credentials that could be used later for people to actually say that you can develop theories. Uh, my first book, book was published in 95, and at that time academics uh, uh, looked down on me, because how, how could I dare to talk about something like knowledge management, uh, records and document management, if I didn't have an advanced degree? So I I came into the the idea of getting an education because I wanted to change the way things were taught. And you can only do that if you've got a union card, right? I mean, you've got one.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, what what strikes me as I listen to you is the disruptive nature of, of your work. And it makes me ponder to what degree many of us that have entered the field are doing it out of a sense of, change uh, or rebellion, a need to somehow correct things in the world uh, or heal the world. What are your thoughts on disruption? I mean, this seems to be the theme in your work of producing disruptive um, technologies, disruptive concepts. Could you comment on that briefly uh, and your evolution? Because it appears that that's what you've uh, been uh, focusing on.
1: Well, I appreciate your observation in that area. And you're absolutely right. Disruptive innovation, to me, is the Mm -hmm. only way that we can actually break down some of these old patterns. Mm -hmm. And I will give you a really good example of how I did that in my higher education teaching. Uh, As a corporate executive, I've always had different business units reporting to me. So marketing was one of those. And at a college I taught at for nine years, I was asked to take on a marketing course because the previous professor was getting so many poor reviews. Now, he had a PhD in marketing. He had been teaching for 20 years. Uh, He was what I call DOA. He hadn't changed his syllabus in 10 years, and he was still teaching classical marketing post-World War II. Hmm. Uh, So the first thing I did when I took on the course was uh, to introduce social media marketing, which had never been taught. In fact, I taught a number of LinkedIn uh, workshops on the campus for free for learners, because no one else was even trying to get the learners from a career point of view to adopt and acquire skills in how to use this new tool, which is gamified, to find their next jobs when they graduated. Mm -hmm. So the first thing in the marketing course was, OK, teams. You have five or six people on the team. Your goal at the end of eight weeks, this was an MBA course, was to uh, create a game that could be used by you in a brand new business unit being set up in your organization, and the five people that are going to play the game have no idea what social media management is about. So the game itself has to teach them. Well, initially, I got blowback by the learners. It's kind of like, well, we've never done this before. Can't you just lecture to us? And regretfully, I never lecture. Um, I, I say that regretfully from their point of view. Uh, they're used to just checking the course off, because they heard how boring it was, and getting on to the next course. Well, the incredible reaction after five weeks was immense. I had them bring in prototypes. We, On the eighth week, the last class, we played each of the team's games for 20 to 25 minutes. And I had professors on the other side of the business building coming over to my class, these were the traditionalists, complaining to me and my class, coming into the classroom, and basically saying, could you guys stop laughing so much and having so much fun? I'm trying to lecture on the other side of the building. And of course, my response was, how's that working for you, by the way?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, That kind of opens up. I mean, there's so many interesting directions here. I think I'd maybe cut to one thing which is uh, emerging here. How effective do you think gamification is in learning? What what degree of effectiveness do you think it, it, it holds? What's your view on it, uh, I guess, retrospectively and also in terms of your current practice?
1: Well, the amount of research material being published in the last ten years on the mm-hmm. impact of gamification, serious games, simulations, immersive learning environments like um, uh, Second Life is just a tsunami. It's incredible the high quality research that is starting to justify what many of us intuitively knew was
2: uh,
1: the the appropriate way to learn. We learn by playing games. We did that when we were younger. There's no reason we can't do that in the workplace or in education. And then when I look at certain tools that are currently being used. Cityville Online, they have 32 million players. Well, obviously it's not boring. Farmville has 80 million active players. SimCity, when one of the releases was was put out in, for SimCity, over 700,000 cities were built in the first 24 hours. Now, Jane McGonagall has talked about the amount of time being spent on things like World of Warcraft in the the uh, online version. And mm-hmm. he basically has has helped to identify that over six million years of time has been investing in solving the problems of a virtual world called a serif. I mean, what are these people learning? They're learning how to interact with others virtually. Uh, They're developing new ways of communication, things that we have never, ever considered possible anymore, especially by younger folks. For example, uh, Jane brought out in one of her lectures that over 10,000 hours of gaming in North America is played by individuals by the time they turn 21. That's the equivalent of being in school from grade one to high school. So they're developing incredibly new skill
2: sets. And well, that's it's goes, so interesting, Michael, this idea of incidental learning, too. Sorry, to, but uh, I mean, you bring up this good point that there's a lot of learning that goes on without it being called learning. Yeah. And I think McGonagall has talked about her personal recovery journey. I certainly am a World of Warcraft player, and it has gotten me through some very difficult times in my life. <laughs> so you, you bring up something that really doesn't come up in the literature, the incidental learning that game engagement produces without us having to even think about content. So, uh, I mean, I'd like to go back to your stream there, but it's such a point that I think requires a little more uh, attention. Well, Uh, I
1: I use games a lot with my uh, entrepreneurship courses as well. Mm. And the the thing it teaches is uh, to help the learner develop persistence, motivation, risk taking, grit, attention to detail, problem solving. I mean, all of these soft skills that are so difficult to convey in the classroom. And in fact, many classrooms are the worst place to try to convey this. Mm-hmm. And Gen, Gen, yeah. Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials, uh, they're all using Fitbit, Nike+, Plus, Facebook, Starbucks rewards, whatever. And this is just a normal the performance enhancing experience for them. It has become their norm. For many of us, it's something we can get into it. And don't get me wrong, I just because I'm not in Gen X, Y, or Z, uh, I play a lot of games as well. And for me it keeps my mind pliable. Uh, it keeps my my senses very sharp. And I think we've already noticed many manufacturers are coming up. Luminosity, and quite a few others, saying that if you're gonna avoid Alzheimer's or whatever when you get into old age, you should continue exercising your brain. It's a great way to make the plastic of our minds
2: malleable. Yeah, there's been some tremendous studies in seniors looking at mahjong <laughs> and yeah. showing showing the enhancement. Um, it it, it raises raised so many interesting issues um, one of them is an area that we discussed quite a bit, and I'd, I'd love your commentary on it, um, you are know, taking off from where we are here. Um, it, do you get a sense that as people gamify that they're producing rich, interesting, exciting games? Or when we start to call something gamification, do we dumb things down a little bit so that they're more accessible to people that don't like games? You know that struggle? Like you want to produce something like World of Warcraft. Or you want to produce something like Sim City. But when you're encountering people that you're bringing it to, sometimes something is lost in the translation. What do you feel about that? How, I mean, do you still try to design high level games or do you modify the games to make them more accessible? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think if you bring up a, uh, a superb area for exploration because uh, this is the classic dilemma of innovation versus mediocrity. And one of one of the the challenges we all have is the individuals, either in a workplace or in school, for whom their name would show up if you looked in Webster's dictionary under mediocre mediocre individuals. And we do have to design for those multiple levels. Now at least in gamification, we have the tools throughout the process uh, to build interfaces that will either go deeper and and bring out the micro learning or deep learning, or people can still skim at a surface, but still pick up salient points that are required as learning outcomes of a game. Uh, So in many of the workshops I give, in which the goal is for the participants to design their own games, I keep it simple at the very beginning. I tell them from the beginning, you are not designing uh, World of Warcraft or any of these deep games. Let's keep it at a simple board game or a card game. Let's just figure out how the the game mechanics, the flow, how a game economy can evolve, uh, how we can track things, uh, even in a simple board game. And what I have found was, for those individuals who really grasp the underlying principles, they're going to go on and do great things. For those who are maybe in that class of mediocre minds, they're going to get by and they'll enjoy it. They may not understand why they do, uh, but their, their uh, ideation around it will be totally different than any other experience they've had. And to me that's what I find taking place so often is even with those individuals who maybe are not the highest performers all at once they get re-engaged and I think in the workplace that's what we want with all the studies that are showing the lack of engagement.
2: So uh, taking off from that a bit further um, what are some key design elements on producing gamified learning. If there's a, a short list of things you can share with our listeners, of things to keep in mind um, as they enter this. Um, well, I oh, use, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah
1: I, I'm very empathetic to what you're trying to convey to your listeners. Uh, it's not a black hole that they enter when they start to look at either um, assessing games for workplace use or designing their own games. There are a number of very well-developed game design or game system uh, uh, frameworks that can be used. I I tend to adopt the one that will fit the organization I'm in and kind of the way they answer why they want games in the workplace or in school. But I use uh, often one for illustrative purposes by a fellow called Mitgush, it's M-I-T-G-U-T-S-C-H, and he calls his approach to gaming systems purposeful design, and because I use design theory and design thinking in a lot of my courses as well, I've adopted his as a way of familiarizing people with a system of framing the games, and that consists of... Mm, brilliant. The aim, the purpose, and the impact is where you begin. If you don't know what you're trying to do, gamification is not the way to get you there. Uh, And then we start out by uh, working with the aesthetics and the graphics, the visualization of how they want to portray the problem to be solved or the quest, and then help them to learn about storytelling, storytelling and developing narratives around the characters or the plot. That's followed by then immersing themselves into how the mechanics of this works. You know, you have your rules, your goals, your rewards, uh, your different levels, uh, and all of those can be poorly designed and make the game absolutely worthless to play. And I think that's one of the things we probably run across both in the workplace and online. There's a lot of piss-poor games out there because they haven't been thought through. The fact that they're called games gives them a uniqueness factor, but once you've even begun to work with the interface, you can dismiss it immediately as just a poorly designed situation. So after the mechanics comes the actual framing of how the play takes place, how the literacy proceeds around the narrative, how the audience is engaged and how the target group really responds to the quest or the goals that are being undertaken.
0: Oh, uh,
2: it's fascinating. Oh, sorry, Michael. It okay. raised so many good questions along the way. Of the project, but let, let, yeah, let's let's the finish. The final step
1: after going through aesthetics, graphics, visualization, narrative, mechanics, and framing is to actually build the content and te- then test it. So, that content, the basic information to be conveyed, to me, that's one of the things about this purposeful design by MITGush, is that that comes last, and regretfully, that's usually Ah, where people begin.
2: Yes, it's like innovation, Rogerian innovation theory. We often begin with, hey, listen to my great idea. (laughs) And (laughs) innovation theory wants you to first give them the return on investment and the investment and then you work toward the middle. You eat the the center of the Oreo first, as it (laughs) were. Now, now, there's a question that prompted and and, and, that that, that led to my brief interruption there. Um, There's ways that we design. I mean, there's fashion designers, and when they're interviewed as how they work, they take walks, and they might see a fascinating shape as they're walking through Cabbage Town, a beautiful part of the city and that architecture reminds them of a theme, they get home and they start drawing patterns. Um, When I design, I tend to do a lot of it when I'm in nature, when I'm away from cities, I go out into the forest and I'll ski or I'll hike for hours, and the problem churns in my head. It's kind of with me all the time, my unconscious is working on it. Everyone has a different way, right? I think Dylan Thomas said to Smell of riding apples before he began to write. I'm wondering <coughs> what are riding apples are, Michael. What what's what happens for you when you get inspired to think of a theme in a game? What how does that process feel for you and where does it happen? Well, interestingly
1: enough, I mean I'm really glad you brought up this side of the ideation behind gaming mm. and gaming theory. Uh, because each individual brings forward their personal experiences in this area. My personal experiences comes from a particular, let's just call it a spiritual framework that I see the world in. I'm, I guess would be called in the classical sense, a Rosicrucian. So I see things in terms of light and patterns of the world around me. And uh, much of the esoteric literature that I read provides very, very uh, useful foundations for building some of my architecture around games. Give you an example. Alchemy. Alchemy has a seven-step process for distilling lead into gold. Now, as we both know, That was not a physical thing that the original hermeticists and alchemists were trying to do. They were working on themselves to build themselves into higher spiritual beings, gold being the consideration that it could be some of the highest, most rarefied. And those different calcification, distillation processes that are highlighted, I use those, and the way it was written about in ancient times, as a way of stimuli, stimulating my imagination around how to build things into the games I'm working on.
2: Fascinating. So you're drawing upon not just a repository of game mechanics, per se. You're drawing upon something much deeper than this, aren't you? You're coming back to worldviews, perhaps Jungian constructs You know, it's funny because I'm informed in my design a lot by, I teach courses in the history of civilization, um, things like this, so we'll look at Babylonian different empires, and I get inspired in a very similar way to you, Michael, it's different, but it does come from a way I see the world, and it kind of comes from uh, being inspired by history and art, aesthetics, and great works, and, you know, we don't talk about this stuff much, do we? The gamification literature, there's not enough of this kind of conversation that yeah. we're having about well, yeah. where this, yeah.
1: Yes, but we, I think we kind of subtly understand why. Uh, how many gamification experts share the fact they see the world through a Rosicrucian uh, mindset? Mm. Mm. Uh, some people may consider us rather weird,
2: right? I think so, (laughs) I I think so, I think it's marketable weirdness, Um, it's
1: innovative and creative, that's for sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but there's something deeper going on, I mean, if I try to piece together the elements of what you've told me, it's looking at change agencies at the root, and you know, it's funny, Amy Jo Kim talks about the same thing, mastery and the journey of learning. Um, I'm wondering um, what um, what developments, for example, well, let me start with something here. Your current projects in the field, are there some things you'd like to share with us that are very interesting for you right now? Various projects that are underway or recently completed, anything like that that helps us put this into a context?
1: Well, most of my projects are in the design side uh, of helping organizations learn how to use the game-based learning to stimulate Mm -hmm. learning itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I have been involved in a couple of games, especially now the emergence of VR and AR-based games, but not unlike yourself in a private sector organization, I had to sign NDAs not to talk about them. So that kind of limits. My, uh, <laughs> <I know.
2: laughs> absolutely. We have so many NDAs, and there, this part, we can't <laughs> talk about anything except where we live. But, Even that might be other NDA. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, but I, I get the idea that. So you're working a little bit in the VR and AR ER space. Is that a, a space that you're exploring? Yeah.
1: Yes, because mm-hmm. to me, that's where the next major step will be taken very quickly over the next five years. In both gamification, serious games, uh, it, well, the whole area of immersive learning environments that were attempted with Second Life, and of course that was a, a, it was revolutionary at the time, but highly primitive. I developed a couple of courses in that, and then I just gave up on it because the interface was so so difficult to use and to teach. Whereas when taking someone into a a VR puzzle or a VR learning experience, uh, what we're currently being challenged with is how do we outline the learning objectives and learning outcomes in a way that we can assess that they've taken place. And there's so much data being fed back from your interaction with a VR environment that an instructor will have a dashboard that looks like a 747 trying to figure out what's being achieved uh, with those interactions in the VR, the live VR environment. So I'm working now on a, a virtual reality for education canvas, similar to a business model canvas or the lean canvas or even the gamification canvas where we can give faculty members or learning designers, ID's, instructional designers, a tool to start mapping out what they're trying to achieve before we even begin the process of touching the technology. And I have a couple of um, clients in Britain, for example, that are creating these immersive educational environments now in VR. And their biggest challenge is that they'll get a professor to, to outline conceptually what they want to do, or an instructional designer for a corporation, then they deliver it with a bunch of developers and a game engine, and then the person starts to tweak it, right? And, of course, the scope of the project goes wonky, and the expenses go up. So I'm trying to uh, design a framework that will help to build the scoping uh, uh, bounds into place at the very beginning. So the communication between the, the conceptualizer and the developer uh, becomes much smoother and much less expensive.
2: So you're, you're bringing together a lot of elements, aesthetics, uh, certainly, and VR and AR assets and asset development. Um, I guess to the point, I guess there's some questions of affordability. Um, you probably have to work with this. How do we get around that? Do we just keep waiting for Oculus Rift to get down to the hundred dollar mark? Or, I mean yeah. it's designed to be our assets so we have whole teams. of. There's one team I'm working with right now and they're, they've got a whole team of artists and of course they make a bench and that's an asset in VR but now you can repurpose events by reskinning it so now it becomes a, a table etc. Uh, these are still, are, are there a lot of prohibitive cost limitations that are keeping us from all jumping into VR or what are your thoughts on where we can sit with respect to that? Do you see it as primary? Well,
1: we certainly are presented with the financial constraints, but this has always been relevant to anything we develop. So That's the question cool. is finding a client uh, where the executive champion has deep enough pockets to do some experimentation and exploration, as well as the the team being able to deliver something very useful. And I'm just running across more and more companies out there and a few educational institutions that are starting to invest. So you are correct, though. There is a point of uh, economic uh, what's it called, um, return. And that is when the Oculus or HTC or whomever creates these uh, uh, eyewear bring it to the point where it's not this heavy luggable thing on your head, just like the early luggables instead of laptops. Yeah. And once you it reaches share? that point, uh, yeah. It'll, it should cost less than a hundred dollars. That will make it highly feasible for experimentation.
2: Well, the actual design though is still going to be fairly prohibitive. I know that one one of the local universities spent a hundred thousand dollars to put their VR lab together with green screens and then the teams and, and there's, there's that level as well. Do you think that the payoff in terms of learning using VR is you seem to indicate it's, it's, it's significantly greater than non-VR. But the, the student experience is capable of doing much more.
1: Um, yes, I, yeah. I believe so. Because of the experiential side of it, you, you will have to do something, really do something in three-dimensional mm-hmm. space. And if we think of the classical apprenticeship models in the medieval period, it was not about book learning. You had to work beside a fellow craft or a master, and he would basically say, chip out. If you were a, free, uh, a Mason, chip out that block. Oh, you did it wrong. Let me show you how to do it. And that's where the lear- learning took place in 3D. Uh, of course, a good master Mason could spec out pictures in the floor to help his apprentices and fellow crafts, Figure out where these blocks are going to go, how they're going to be lifted, etc.
2: Do you see gamification as a part of these technologies? Because you can have VR with no game, right? You could say I'm delivering a course on microbes and have people wander through a pit full of microbes. But I think there's a connection between gaming, gamification, and VR that you keep um, bringing up. Could you elaborate that a little bit, uh, a little bit for us, and how those two things mesh?
1: Well, using the example that you just described, uh, walking through brain cells or a human body uh, in a non-gamified environment, you're absolutely correct. But that's the equivalent of watching a uh, black-and-white talky or non-talky movie, a silent movie, in the 1920s. There's no real interaction. Mm -hmm. Oh, you might be able to reach out and touch one of the globules but there is nothing there from a learning outcome other than a visual and tactile experience. So it's a it's a silent film. Well, if we now think of what you can do in places like the Void in Salt Lake City, Utah, have you ever heard of it?
2: No. Please tell us about it. Uh,
1: the Void is a full VR-based uh, entertainment space. So you. It's like the old uh, laser um, shooting galleries that that were very popular around 15, 20 years ago, where you'd go in with a team and try to outdo another team, and you had laser guns. Well, now you do this all via VR specs. So they skin the whole environment for you uh, based on which game you choose. So you can be inside of a spaceship, you can be down inside the Earth, whatever, and then you're you go into a quest for two and a half to three hours with a team of people, and you have to achieve particular outcomes. Well, you ought to see the faces on these people when they come back out of this experience. And they're wearing haptic devices as well. So if an alien comes up to you and strikes you, you feel it. Ah. Well, the the interaction, the team interaction, is something we've never seen before. People are put in simulated life-death situations with their colleagues. Uh, it's an afternoon at the visual movies, so to speak, but they're actually living through the experience. When it becomes part of the lived programming, the brain p- picks it up so totally different than the two-dimensional space we normally
2: deal with in learning. Wow. Wow. You really opened up. I think. Uh One of the questions open up is, uh, I was going to ask a little about the future, but I think you've given us the future. So there's more to VR than just uh, more convincing-looking bacteria. We're actually actually engaging other parts of the brain. You're really talking about a revolution in, in the neuroscience of learning by introducing the VR, aren't you?
1: That's absolutely true. Now, one of the other elements of it that I think we've got to think in terms of Uh, is that with the millions of people engaged in things like World Warcraft, Farmville, Cityville, SimCity, what if we want to think in terms of engaging sets of engineers, uh, botanists, agrologists, uh, uh, biologists in terraforming and exploring a new world as if they had taken space travel to get there. They will actually spend more time in that virtual 3D space building and creating things that have never been created on this planet and overcoming obstacles we have not encountered yet because they're going to be putting themselves in a totally new space, a workspace, a thought space that never existed before on this planet. What if we simulated? Uh, Mars colonies by people having to live them for eight to ten hours a day in virtual space. We would learn so much about space exploration, constraints, issues, problems, concerns, and benefits of that. And in fact, we would be building technology that with a 3D printer, we would probably be creating in space to use within space stations.
2: So it's a new way of perception and probably a whole new way of learning. I mean, is it that radically – would you say this is a new paradigm of learning or an augmentation of what we've always done since the time of the ancient Greeks? It sounds like you're hinting at a really new way that isn't just recycled John Dewey.
1: Well, there are new elements to it. I I don't think we have got the vocabulary we need Mm. We need a few Whiteheads and Deweys and, and Pages. Yeah,
2: a few Whiteheads. Oh my <laughs> goodness. One of my favorites. I think I sort of vaguely half understand part of what he says sometimes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's one chap I, I read a lot of. His name's Rudolf Steiner. I don't know if you've read Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, these Water, people.
1: Yeah, they peer into a world that um, we can only catch glimpses of and i think we're limited right now with how we can formulate vocabulary to describe what's going on at the same time we're we're kind of seeing the introduction of a technology that creates and solidifies the apprenticeship model and that has been used for millennia as a way to learn so in a way Yes, we've got a bit of new technology uh, that augments that, and, and the learning is augmented. We're seeing what apprenticeship models can do uh, at its height, not at its, at its lowest. Because you can redo things all the time, right?
2: Yeah. Whereas I mean, if you're, ta- you're, go- you're talking about something very big here, it doesn't seem that we're even talking about learning. You're talking about a whole new way that we can function in the world. I mean, if we pull this through, you know, on a trajectory with what you're saying, um, it does build upon the old, but the new is very strong.
1: Well, Arthur C. Clarke had a terrific novel called Childhood's End. And that's where I think we're at right now. We're at Childhood's End.
2: Wow. That's phenomenal stuff. Um, Michael, we can talk all day, and I think it would be lovely, Sahil, if we could schedule another round of, uh, of interview, um, because we are coming up to time. Um, sure. And it's hard to stop this, because we could just, I think we're just beginning to touch uh, the, you know, just to scratch the surface of this phenomenal pioneering work you're doing in the area. Um, are there any kind of concluding comments about uh, where where you see uh, us being able to all collectively uh, bring about this type of change in corporate and educational contexts? Or uh, is there a call to action somewhere for us? Well, actually, yeah. I'm
1: I'm trying to craft a manifesto, but. Uh, and there have been a number of e-learning manifestos. Uh, I, I do not feel as positive about the future as I'd like to. I feel much more cynical because of the experiences I've had in both higher education and corporate learning and training. And um, it takes so long for these monolithic organizations to move into innovation, uh, especially universities. So I wish that there was uh, a sense that we're actually starting to build a tsunami. My sense is that there are a few of us on the edge uh, of the beach and we can see that new world and most of the rest of the people are still fighting wars in the jungles behind us and not knowing that there's something so totally uh, distinctive as far as building a better humanity. Uh, so I wish I could be more positive. Maybe over the next year I'll, I'll be less cynical, but uh, right now I just do not see people changing very quickly. I've I've been in faculty workshops, and I've been able to turn people around very quickly, kind of like uh, how um, what's that uh, uh, kitchen guy, kitchen hell,
2: uh,
1: uh, chef? Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay. You know, he can go into a restaurant, and in less than a week, he turns them around into a successful restaurant. I wish transformation management was that simple.
2: Maybe we need a reality show. (laughs) That's that's it. That's it. Um, Michael, thank you so much today. I said we could really go on forever. Your work is truly visionary. And to me reflects a real taste of wisdom. And I think there's facts, data, information, knowledge, but there is a level of wisdom. And I think you have definitely touched on it today. Um, Sahil, do you want to wrap this up for us?
0: Yeah. uh, Michael, we're I think we're definitely having you back on the podcast at some point. Uh,
1: oh, I don't know what I would talk about next time.
2: <laughs> well, maybe some of your NDAs will be a little more open.
1: <laughs> uh, hopefully. Oh, I, really, uh, I really appreciate both of your time today in arranging this. This has been very cathartic for me to actually verbalize some of the things that I've been working on and cognating on uh, and, and have people who are receptive to the ideas.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the pleasure's all ours, really. Um, I was just listening, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was great. I, I mean, I really think we should have you back on at some point. And uh, this podcast will be available to you, Michael. I'll definitely send this to you. Um, great. Yeah. Uh, all the best, and speak soon, and uh, can't wait to have you back on.
1: Well, I look forward to finding a way to collaborate with your team. Uh, It sounds like you're doing some very fascinating work in ARC as well, and I'd like to learn more about that.
0: Absolutely. We'll definitely speak. All righty. So that's it for today's podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening. Um, As I mentioned before, this podcast is available On our SoundCloud page, we are also working to get it onto TuneIn Radio Radio and iTunes, so you might be able to access it from there in very soon time. Check us out at gameandtrain.com and follow us on social media. And we hope to do more of these interviews.
1: Stay tuned. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Take
0: care. Bye
1: bye.
0: Game and train mobile self-authored game of fire. Check us out at gameandtrain.com.